Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cloud Wars Live, where we explore today's digital revolution by speaking with thought leaders who are helping to change how the world lives, works, plays, learns, and dreams. Our guest today is the one only Chris Lockhead, who's a regular guest of ours, part of our digital all-star team. Chris has been an author. Now he's a uh, best listening or best watched podcaster, entrepreneur, marketer, thinker, and really somebody who looks at the world in a different way. So we call this series Lockhead on Different. And if you've seen Chris before, you'll understand it. If you haven't, Chris, welcome. What do you have for us today? What are you thinking about? Dr. Evans, it's uh, great to be here for my, um, uh, my annual examination. Monthly, monthly. We've monthly examination. I mean, yes, well, God knows I need to be examined once a month by somebody. <laughs> uh, so far, we're finding uh, the, the outcomes of the exams have been good. Uh, it looks like you've had a particularly busy month here thinking about things. And Chris, you know, got stuff from Mary Meeker's internet reports and thoughts on podcasting, polling, lots of interesting stuff. So how did some of these things pop into mind and, and uh, what do you make of them? Well, as you know, Mary Meeker, the queen of the internet, has been producing this wonderful, deeply researched internet report since really the mid-90s, so back, back when fire was invented. And, uh, and so she just came out with her most recent one, and I've started to dig into it. But a couple things right off the top that sort of struck me um, as, as an aha, something to reflect on, which is half the world, Bob, is now on the internet, 3.8 billion people are now on the, um, the internet superhighway. And I don't know about you, but it, and we can break down the country she's got here, which I think is also or the regions, which is interesting. But uh, on one hand, it blew me, blew me away. Wow, half the world, you know? I mean, I can remember my first CompuServe account and Nets, Netscape going public and, you know, so it's one of the cool things about being on the planet for a while is you get to see a cool range of shit, right? And so it's fascinating that half the world's now on the internet. Um, geez, what do we have to do to get the other half of the world on the internet? Yeah. yeah. And Chris, of that other half that isn't, how many would you uh, estimate are uh, do that by choice versus not having the opportunity? You know, that's hard to know, but I, I would guess, is just a guess, of course, I would guess a large majority of them uh, are not on the internet, not because of choice, because of lack of opportunity. Yeah, I think for the most part, and look, there's a lot of negative things and, you know, some of it justified and there's a lot of shitting on Silicon Valley and Facebook and, and whatever, whatever, and Big Brother, you know, there's a lot of negative things you could say about technology and I'm happy to have those conversations and I think those criticisms are very important. However, it is ridiculous to think that the uh, growth of the internet and information technology overall has not been uh, for the vast, uh, you know, large percentage of people, a massive, massive benefit. And so I think it behooves us to think about what does it take to get the other half of the planet on the internet? I don't think it's primarily a choice. And uh, I think the more people on the internet in general, um, the better off we'll be. Chris, very small and personal point on this. I know it's been interesting over the last few months as I've watched, uh, you know, a relatively new site that I have, cloudwars.co, where I have articles and podcast episodes up there primarily. Uh, you know, I last check it around 11 p.m. or midnight. And then when I get up early in the morning, around six, <clears throat> I look at the geographic spread. And it's, you know, the United States falls to less than 10%. And there's, you know, large readership 
viewership from all over the world. So, you know, sort of this thing of following the clock and it reflects a little bit some of the numbers you put here from Mary Meeker's report and this ability, and you've talked about this before for a relatively, not relatively, a very small business like mine, the Chicken Chick and others, you can have a fully global audience. Yes. And I think to your point about the value, the benefit of what the internet can do, I mean, this was, uh, completely not just unimaginable even if somebody could imagine it, it would have been utterly impossible before and now not just buying and selling stuff but changing ideas sharing ideas pushing innovation just connecting with people around the world it is uh, it is a phenomenon available to everybody absolutely bob and you know there's a niche nato going on right because what's because of the reach of the internet um, you can you can be somebody designing a micro niche, you know, like our friend the Chicken Chick, um, and have scale. And so we have these micro niches at scale. And it, those of us who are playing in the internet space, we to your point, we never know um, who we're going to touch. And it's a very very powerful thing, you know. I like you get email and tweets and LinkedIn's and whatever from people all around the world. And so that's a very exciting thing. And I think what it means for um, you know, small businesses, what you could think of as small e-entrepreneurs, what the technology has done, primarily the cloud and everything that's come since the cloud is allowed these micro niche businesses to uh, scale. And uh, I think it's a very powerful idea. I think it's a very exciting idea. I think it creates massive opportunities. And I think it's very cool that half the world's on the internet. And I think it behooves the rest of us to say, hmm, what else do we need to do? How can we welcome the other half of the world to the conversation. Yeah, yeah, and Chris, one point too that you had noted about uh, from Mary's report here, the percent of commerce or total sales coming from outside traditional retail over on the e-commerce side. What do you make of that? Yeah, so she points out that e-commerce is now 15% of retail uh, and it's only up 1% since last year. Um, but the interesting thing to me about that is uh, you know, ho holy shit, Batgirl. Amazon is flirting with a trillion dollar market cap. They are, of course, the massive category queen, category king in e-commerce in many, many, many categories, as you well know. And yet, um, look, grade 10 math was the hardest 12 years of my life. But is, am, I, am I reading this right? 85% of shit in America is not bought online uh, to the point on, on micro niches being able to uh, achieve uh, scale. Um, think about all of the uh, niche commerce opportunities around the world if uh, such a small percentage of retail is just online. And Chris, one of the things that ties in with that that you've talked about before is with young people, right, coming in. And this is, they won't look at this and say, wow, that's weird. They'll look and say, no, this is how the world is. This is how the world operates. I can connect with people on all seven continents. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, that brings me to another thing I wanted to uh, share with you. Um, the folks at Adobe have this site called CMO.com. And I think they've done a very good job of sort of thought leadership and building their own content. And it almost looks like they're a publishing company. And some people can't, you know, don't even know that it's not a publishing company. Anyway, they've done a great job with CMO.com. And to your point, um, they recently put out something on the, quote, 15 mind-blowing stats about Generation Z that tie to uh, what you just said. We don't have to go through all the 15, but there's some interesting points here. Uh, first of all, Generation Z 
uh, as defined by Pew Research is anyone born uh, from 97 onward. Okay. And uh, um, there's 61 million of these folks in the U.S. alone. 61 million people born since 97. So think about that. Um, do you know what year Van Halen's 1984 came out? You tell me. 1984 is when it came out. And <laughs> <laughs> See, I learned new stuff all the time. From all you. the time. I know. Amazing knowledge. Incredible. <laughs> and I just look at it, you know, and go, how's anybody born after that record came out? I don't understand. But, but I digress. There's 61 million of them. And here's the mind blower. Uh, according to the U.S. Census, again, this is all from CMO.com. Um, they will be 30% of the workforce by 2030. And if you look at some of this data, it's fascinating, this survey data. 80% say they aspire to work with cutting edge technology. 80%. 91% of them said technology would influence their job choice. So if you look at the importance of technology, the internet hitting half the, the world, and this massive new generation, I think a very exciting generation, as fun as it is to poo-poo on millennials and now Generation Z, I actually am very excited about them. Um, but th to think that we're at a place, you know, when you and I started our careers, most people weren't working in information technology. They maybe thought it was cool or interesting, but now 80% of young people want to work with cutting edge technology and 91% say it's going to influence their job choice. Well, <clears throat> Chris, let's look at the other side of that. Uh, one of the stats that you shared, 55% of them use their smartphones five or more hours a day. Now, we are integrated with the machines, Bob. <laughs> We're now one with the machines. Yeah. Yeah. And 26% of those Gen Zs are, use their phones 10 or more hours a day. Um, I, I don't want to offer too many details about this. I know Groucho Marx had a joke. The punchline, he says, well, I like cigars, but every once in a while I take it out of my mouth. So, um, you know, there's, there's something here that is, I think, inspiring because if you can engage with the world through this device that becomes part of you, you know, that's cool. Probably a lot of those five or 10 hours a day or things they're doing at work, it becomes their primary work tool. But um, do you buy into this thing about five or 10 hours a day on your mobile phone is cutting into the traditional social skills? of people sorry i didn't hear you i was updating my instagram what was that <laughs> no look i i think on one hand you know it's it here's what i've learned right a lot of things in life are a fascinating i think worthy of discussion and thinking dichotomy mm -hmm. so on one hand i don't know about you maybe this sounds corny but i find myself with all this technology a lot of the time going, this is awesome. You know, I just bought this new Rode uh, uh, Caster Pro. It's a podcasting carbodingulator panel thing here. Um, and it's massively improved, you know, my podcasting. And we have these phones and these computers. And, you know, I, I look at my computer sometimes and I go, like, my whole life is on this thing, right? Like we I watch my favorite TV shit. I, I consume my favorite books and articles. And, and, and I, like you, am a, a, a small-sized uh, solopreneur with lots of help uh, media company. And I just go like, this phone's everything. It's my friend. It's my Star Trek communicator. It's my business. It's my, 
And so there's a big part of me that looks at all this and goes, isn't this amazing? Because this technology is allowing the creative people of the world to do things that we never thought were possible. So I, I, I get very excited and, and the, the, the child in me with big wide eyes looks at how cool and awesome and, 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 and so forth all that is. On the other hand, there's the uh, dichotomies part of this, which is, you know, uh, roughly the beginning of the year, I deleted all social media with the exception of Instagram off my phone because I felt like it was too distracting for me. And recently, Bob, I went on a trip and I wasn't going to take my laptop. And so I thought, you know, I got to download these apps and, you know, because I, I don't want to be totally out of touch. I'm, you know, I'm supposed to be in touch with the world, I think. So, so I re-downloaded Facebook and all the other shit, right? And, uh, and, and today is the day I'm going to retake it all off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so on one hand, there's this awesomeness of what's possible and being able to connect with people and do creative things and work on our technology and communicate the way we are today and all the awesome-tastic stuff. And I think that can't be overstated. And then there's the flip side, which is, you know, sometimes I find myself sitting in, in, in my beautiful garden uh, on my phone or computer for half an hour going, what, what am I doing? I haven't even kind of looked up and looked at a flower. Like I got to yeah. stop looking at this shit. Right. So it's this rabbit hole we can fall into. Chris, I was, um, I thought of this when you're telling the story about sitting in your garden and, you know, did you see in some sense where you are, you know, were you in the moment at all, or, you know, you could have been sitting in your garage or, you know, who knows where an airport, um, what is that in uh, in Singapore? That hotel the, uh, with the three different towers going up and connected by the yeah 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 thing on the top. I was having lunch up there in my my final days at Oracle with a, a great guy there from Oracle, and there were so many people up there. You know, it's it's an unbelievable place. You're up six hundred feet in the air. You got these these views. It's remarkable. There's an infinity pool off to one side. And there were so many people running around and they had their selfie sticks, which I know you're a, you're a huge fan of, which we've discussed, the selfie sticks. And he said, I wonder if the people who come up here doing this stuff, do they ever see what's here in real life? Or do they just see it, you know, what they see through their phone? And so again, I'm not, I'm not, I don't lose sleep over this. I don't worry about it. I think there are times in my life that my parents probably were, geez, does he have to sleep with the basketball? You know, could he, could he put it down for a little bit here or there? And, you know, it might be one of those things, but there is something, uh, I believe a little bit, Chris, that flip side of what you talked about, the magic, the wonder, the, the things that are so good about it. But it, maybe it's one of those things, anything taken to an excess can be too much, or maybe it's just a fact that I'm going to be 63 in a couple months and I just don't see the world the way these uh, Gen Z folks do. Well, that, that part is for sure. N neither do I, but yeah, I think, I think life is a fascinating inquiry into a lot of things that are dichotomies, you know, on one hand, the technology is incredible and I think it's done way more good than bad. Uh, uh, but the flip side is we fall into this hole uh, the Gen Zers are spending a massive amount of time. We have integrated ourselves with the machine and we're massively being surveilled. So <laughs> yeah, that's the negative part. <laughs> yeah. Well, dichotomies. You had some thoughts about, uh, you know, the podcasting boom of which, you know, you've become a significant part. What, what, what's the yin yang with that? 
So here's the exciting part. So the, the folks at Andreessen Horowitz, uh, the venture capital firm in Silicon Valley, recently put out what I thought was an absolutely spectacular report on podcasting. And they, they consolidated some research from Edison and others, and they added some of their own stuff, and they packaged it really, really wisely. I thought it was a very compelling piece of work. Anyway, you know, the headline for me in this is 25% of Americans now listen to podcasts. And interestingly enough, 65% started in the last three years. Wow. People who consume podcasts uh, weekly consume uh, on average seven podcast episodes and spend six hours and 37 minutes with podcasts. And so I find this very exciting. Uh, I've always loved radio when I was a kid. I love talk radio. I don't know why I love politics and I, you know, from a very young age. Um, I, I'm, maybe it's because I'm dyslexic and have all these other things. I lovingly refer to them as dysphoglia. Um, but I'm, a, I'm, I, I listen through hearing and through, uh, <laughs> through, through, through watching and participating and, and so forth. It's easier for me than reading. But um, the fa here's the fascinating dichotomy around podcasting. We live in a world where we're told that everybody has a two-second attention span and you hear all this bullshit about, you know, goldfish have longer attention spans than humans. And, uh -huh. you know, God knows if any of that's true. But um, what, were you, what were you saying? Yeah, exactly. Excuse me. I'm sorry. I was on my Instagram. <laughs> um, but the, the, here's the dichotomy around podcasting. If you believe that, that the smartphone has been at least in, a contributor to the supposed dwindling of our attention spans. Uh, and, and if you go to lunch or dinner with people, there's a lot of people who won't put their phones down. And so it's, it's people are distracted. Um, and you could argue therefore that, that the smartphone has helped destroy people sitting down, looking, looking at each other in the eye and having a real conversation. You could make that argument. And the growth in podcasting, and in particular in dialogue podcasts like 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 Cloud Wars, um, is is massive, and so I find it fascinating that the technology that many people say are dis is destroying our attention spans, is actually bringing back long form conversation, and I just think that's fascinating and fantastic. Yeah, and again, you know, you've become you know one of the top uh, podcasters in the world you've you understand this stuff you've started to put out some promotional pieces i've seen chris too about that it's not uh it can be taken down a very dangerous path right if you go the wrong way it's like, like anything done right it can be a beautiful exchange and that that one of the numbers you mentioned right is so it's an hour a day that people are spending with podcasts so like you said these long-form pieces so that's led you to some thinking you said a little bit about everything from corporate podcasting to some variants of podcasting that you find to be a little bit troubling. Yeah. So let's touch on those. You know, if, if I put my CMO hat back on and I think about podcasting, I'm stunned at how many companies don't get it. And here's what I mean by don't get it. Uh, I don't think you can be a company today without a podcast and more importantly, without a point of view thought leadership content strategy. We talked about CMO.com. Uh, you know, uh, the primary sponsor of my podcast is NetSuite. It's for growth-oriented entrepreneurs. And, and regardless of how you want to think about it, I think today 
we we just did a, an episode of our uh, of our podcast with um, Sangram Bajri, and he's uh, the sort of founder, a co-founder of Terminus, a marketing automation company. And um, he built a a thought leadership profile for himself and the company, eighteen to twenty four months before they were even in market with a product and drive leads for their sales force and and kind of he created a conference, he created an amazing podcast called Flip Your Funnel, and he did all these things to sort of center himself and the company around a set of topics, ideas, and problems that they he knew <clears throat> he was building products for, so that they would have a community. And his mantra was, if you don't have a community, then you're a commodity. And he used thought leadership, podcasting, writing, conferences, you know, what you and I would call the media business. And so the aha is, I think you have to be a media thought leader if you're a company. And I think you have to be building a community and thought leadership around a set of topics. So that's on the external side. Here's the other one. And so most companies aren't doing that. I don't think they've figured that out. I think it's an exciting new area. For, for, for companies. On the internal side, how many companies do you know, Bob, that have an in, internal comms podcast? You know, if I was the CEO of any kind of company today, whether it was a small startup or a, a Fortune 500 company, as a CEO, I would have a weekly podcast, even if it was only five or 10 minutes. Hey, folks, this is what I've been working on this, you know, just, just like you would with a blog, just like you'd have a water cooler conversation. If I was the CMO of a company today, I would do the same thing. And I would have a bunch of internal comms podcasts. I would have one for the product team that is sort of shares with our, our organization what we're working on and when new releases are coming out and things. So think about all the stuff you used to have on an intranet. I would have podcasts. And if I was a company of any size, I might have a dozen podcasts around certain topics that are internally focused for employees to consume so that they can continue to educate themselves so that they can be up to date on company strategies and approaches and policies and things along those lines, things that you used to do with internal blogging. And I'm, I'm stunned that there's not more corporate podcasting. And now a quick break to hear from our sponsor. SAP Experience Management is helping businesses connect to their customers and then connect customers back to those businesses. Just listening to your customers is not enough. Businesses need to respond, react, and relate to them as individuals. Each one of them has his or her own likes, dislikes, and preferences. By combining experience data with operational data, SAP can help your business turn customer insights into actions that make their experiences better. SAP Experience Management helps you turn customers into fanatics and products into obsessions. Learn more at sap.com xm. The best on SAP. Now back to the show. Uh, Chris, I, it's fun as you were talking about that, <clears throat> tried to propose this idea, um, oh, whatever it was, 10, 12 years ago, I was working with a sister company over in London, and uh, the guy was in charge of communications there. I was uh, recommending this for the CEO, and he came back the next day, and he said, well, I've talked to some people about this, and we think it could be a good idea, but what if somebody would make a recording of the podcast and edit it in a way that did not uh, come out in a flattering you know, dimension for the CEO. And I said, oh, okay, you know, there's, you know, what if uh, the Martians come and, you know, take over the building and we're in trouble too. So, uh, well, and you know, what if, if your aunt had male genitalia, she'd be your uncle. Like what, there's a lot of kinds of what ifs you could talk about. I mean, I think that's ridiculous. Uh, we also, I think we live at a time where, um, my headset as a former CMO is there's no such thing as an internal communication. 
Right? We see it all the time. There's some kind of big news in a company and they put it out there and in five seconds, somebody emails that to a reporter or whatever. You, know, you just do forward to Gmail and nobody knows what you did, right? And so we live in a world, I think, of radical uh, transparency. We live in a world where there's no such thing really as an in internal communication. So I think you have to be wise about what you put out if you're going to do internal podcasting and realize some of the stuff's going to get out. But, you know, who gives a shit? Um, I think it's, it's time we communicate. It's time we collaborate. It's time we share. And, um, you know, we would talk about some of the Jim Harder numbers from Gallup if you want. But the bottom line is when you look at the research, employees are disengaged. Managers are dis disengaged at work. And so I think we as corporate leaders have to do more things to create a legendary work environment. And I think part of it is communication. I think part of it is corporate podcasting, both internal podcasts and external podcasts. Chris, I want to get to that, uh, some of the research you had talked about, but first just touch on this, you know, if we could flip from a modern emerging communications medium to one that's been around for, you know, a few thousand years, books. You had come across a few that uh, you were kind of excited about. Yeah, so I, you know, I've read more books in the last two years, Bob, than I think in the last 200 years, because... Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate that we get a lot of these awesome authors on the podcast. And, and when, when they come on, of course, their PR people send me the pre-release copies of their books. And, and I only have people on that I'm interested in. So, yeah. you know, I'm always amazed as an author myself when I go on other podcasts and, and the host, the podcaster hasn't read my book. I'm like, well, why do you even have me here? At least give it a fucking skim. It's an easy read, right? Anyways, I, I don't have anybody on that I don't read the book, and maybe I don't read every word on every page, but I mean, I do try to consume the book. So long story longer, there's been a couple on lately that have really struck me, and um, I just mentioned one. There's a new book out called It's the Manager by Jim Harder, and he's a Dr. Jim Harder, PhD, and he's the chief scientist at the Gallup organization. And they did this fascinating thing, Bob, where they did the largest study of its kind. They interviewed about 37 million people to get a, a, a real powerful set of insights around what's going on in the modern workplace. And there's a lot, a lot to uh, unearth here, but let me, let me just underscore the two things that jumped out at me from, from Jim's book, It's the Manager. 34% um, of workers say they're engaged at work. So, wow. so you just think about that and go, uh, most people in most companies say they're not engaged in what they're doing. And then interestingly enough, two thirds of managers say they're not engaged at work. So most managers are not engaged and roughly a, a third, if you know, again, correct me on the math here, um, of people say they're not engaged and no shit. If, you're, if your manager or your boss or your leader's not engaged, then maybe you're not gonna be engaged. And so I think there's a, um, a fascinating uh, thing here around um, how do we create a legendary work environment that will break this? And I'll give you an idea around this um, to connect a couple dots. We had this legendary sales leader um, on Follow Your Different not long ago. His name's Dan Cassetta. And he runs the West Coast for this amazing company called Cutco Knives. And Dan was the guy that had this insight many years ago because most, most of their team is, are younger folks, right? So they, they often have employees who work for them for two or three months over the summer who are coming out of high school, going into college, going through college. They have people who stay beyond that, but a lot of young people. And so his, his aha was 
Um, how, do we, how do we train and motivate young people to be incredibly successful selling knives? And here was the aha. And the mantra is uh, changing lives by selling knives. So he said, what if we turn ourselves into a personal growth, personal development, career development company that happens to sell knives? So the culture they've created is one that's deep on, on recruiting, deep on uh, what we used to call enculturation, installing culture, deep on training and resilience and relationship building. And so they sort of imagine if, you know, Tony Robbins and Jim Rohn and, and, and sort of all these sort of uh, Zig Ziglar and all these sort of uh, personal development and, 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 and business and life development coach type folks swizzled all their shit up and turned themselves into a knife selling company. That's sort of what Dan led at Cutco and they've been incredibly successful at it. Um, so anyway, here's the aha I had. What if more companies thought that way? What if GE or IBM or Cisco or, or, or whoever said, you know, we're not selling software. We're not selling databases. We're not selling carbodingulators. We're a personal growth, personal development company. The number one thing we care about is the growth and success of our people for the time they're with us and the time they're alumni. We're not going to treat them like shit when they leave. We're going to treat them like treasured alumni, right? And we want our company to be the defining place the defining experience in their career that, that for them, there's a before and after they work with us. Maybe some of them spend their whole career with us. Maybe some of them spend a few years with us. But regardless, we want to have such a powerful impact on them personally that um, we're the defining experience to their career that sets them up for success, either with us over the long term or in other places. That's a very different shift in headset. And I would posit to you that the Dan Cassetta Cutco mindset um, enables companies to have much more engaged managers and employees than the, than the horrifying stats coming out from, from the Gallup organization. And I think um, as, as work and life are more and more blurred, I think more companies need to have the Dan Cassetta mindset to, to, to change these, I would call troubling uh, stats from Jim Harder. Well, Chris, I, a few thoughts on that. One is, um, you know, you, you, talked earlier about some of the, the stats with the Gen Z folks there. I just don't see a lot of them saying, oh, yeah, I'll go work at this place where I'm disengaged. And sure, I'll stay there four or five or six years. Now, they're going to track over toward the sort you mentioned. Um, I bought a set of Cutco knives from a high school kid several years ago. They're unbelievable. And at one point, he was so excited, he was so pumped up. The scissors that come with a knife said he was going to show me how to cut a penny in half. But he said he had uh, smashed his finger playing some sort of sports. And he said, I might not be. I said, that's okay. You know, I believe, I trust you. I trust you that it'll cut the penny in half. We'll, we'll keep that penny. That uh, remarkable culture that you're talking about there, you know, improving lives, selling knives that Cutco has here, made me think as well of, your conversation recently with uh, Andre Iguodala, right? He, he voiced a similar thing, you know, set yourself up, make a plan, be ready, you know, go attack this and have a model in place to follow through. Yeah, and the other thing Andre talked a lot about, of course, in that same vein is the culture that they've developed at this, the Golden State Warriors, right? And people talk about culture and, and look, I'm guilty of it myself. I hear the word culture and then all of a sudden what comes up for me is, oh, here comes HR bullshit. 
you know, and, and you sort of have this, this uh, slightly, uh, uh, you know, as a 30 year veteran of the, <laughs> the corporate world, slightly John, oh, we're going to have a uh, uh, HR corporate culture offsite in Half Moon Bay. Oh, fuck. You know, and we're going to fall backwards and we're going to catch each other and all that stuff, right? Uh, so if you sort of wash your brain out about whatever sort of silliness you've been associated with in the past and begin to think about the Dan Cassetta mindset, which is, hey, maybe, maybe our job here uh, as a company is to help build legendary leaders and people, right? If you believe the mantra that leaders don't create followers, leaders create more leaders, then you say, well, look, maybe you're an employee with us for one summer. Maybe you're an employee with us for the rest of your lives. But no matter what, we're going to put together our culture and an approach and some training here that is going to be uh, material in, in, in powerfully and positively impacting your life. And if you think that's your number one job, and in the case of Cutco, selling knives is the number two job, all of a sudden things change. And I've met a lot of Cutco people now, and they're all unbelievable. It's like they're, they're positive, they're driven, they're, 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 they're personable, they know how to build a relation. I mean, they have learned some, you know, as uh, Napoleon Dynamite said, they've learned some skills. Um, and I just thought, like, imagine if a company like uh, Salesforce viewed itself, or Oracle, or Cisco, or IBM, or GE viewed itself as a company whose job it was is to build this culture and do this legendary training and to impact people's lives by selling knives. It's, it's Dan turned, did a, did a 180. And I think that 180 is what we need to do in the corporate world. And I think, you know, Dan Harder from, or excuse me, um, uh, it's Dan Cassetta, Tim, um, uh, Jim Harder from uh, uh, Gallup and his new book, It's the Manager. You know, these, these, these data uh, are very troubling, I think, when you say that two thirds of managers are not engaged. And I think we have to think about work in different ways as a result. Yeah, man, I, I, absolutely. And, uh, you know, you talked a minute ago, Chris, about that blurring of lines between personal and professional. I, I think that's a, that's a path we're on now that's never going to change. It's going to, I think, become more intense. So how do companies try then to compete on that level of, uh, you know, this is how it's going to be. Do you want to have that personal and professional life mixed in a way that's sort of boring and then make your personal life boring? So the stakes are, are higher than ever before with that. And, um, you know, one of the lines that you had passed over to, I want to be sure you get a chance to talk about Scott Galloway and uh, some of the ideas you had there. The, the one point you sent over, the happiness graph is a smile. Yeah. So I think this is fascinating. We just had Professor Galloway on, on the podcast. And um, look, I don't agree with everything he says, but I think he's a very fascinating guy, very smart guy, and a guy worthy of paying attention to. And he's an NYU Stern prof. And he does a lot in the area of marketing and technology and, you know, in the world you and I live in. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, this is his second book. It's called The Algebra of Happiness. And it's a research-based look at happiness, which I find fascinating. I, I, I'm very drawn to sort of data-oriented books around how you design a legendary life. Anyway, one of, the things, one of the big findings that he looks at in the book is he says the happiness graph is a smile. So if you think about happiness over time, it looks like a smile. And I'm paraphrasing him, of course. But here's what he says, you know, in our in the Western world, so forget rest of world for a sec. In the Western world, what the data tells us is that, you know, from zero to 20, for most people, pretty happy. You know, you're, you're playing football, or maybe today you're, you're playing video games, and you know, you're 
going to uh, high school and you're chasing girls and drinking beer and, you know, doing all the stuff that you do from zero to 20. Um, and so happiness is pretty high on, on the chart. And then he says around 25 or so is, is he calls it the get, shit gets real time, right? And then happiness starts to drop off as we go to work and, you know, we, we build our careers and, and we meet spouses and we, you know, many of us decide, of course, to collaborate on the manufacture of other human beings and, and the combination of being in relationships and creating human beings and, and driving our career forward. Essentially from 20 to 45, 50-ish, um, you got to carry a lot of water. You got to get a lot of shit done. And, and so um, the curve in terms of happiness over time drops because we're busy. We're working 60, 80 hours, 100 hours a week in some cases. And, you know, uh, we got to deal with all that stuff. And then if we achieve any level of success and, and, and we have a reasonably decent career and a reasonably decent, you know, marriage and relationships, and maybe we're reasonably okay at making people, you know, we sort of get through that sort of 25 to 45 period where we're really hunkered down on life. And we begin to, begin to come out the other side. And we begin to have a little bit of perspective. And maybe we've made a little bit of money. And maybe we're feeling more comfortable in our own skin. We know who we are better, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The happiness curve starts to go back up. And so I thought it was a very fascinating uh, insight. I think it's a profound one. Um, and I think it's one that all of us should realize that, you know, there's a point in our life where we're going to hunker down and we're going to get focused on things. And maybe we're not going to have as much time to play. And maybe our happiness will um, uh, diminish somewhat. Um, but you know, there's hope on the other side, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> there is, there is. And Chris, I think what you were talking about, like what Cutco's doing, uh, maybe Cutco wants to take that, uh, take the dip out of that smile, make it a little yes, bit more so. of a straight line. Well, and it's interesting you connect the dots that way. Cause I do too. Right. So if you take the Jim Harder from Gallup research on disengagement and you take the happiness graph and you connect them, you go, hmm, I wonder if we were creating an environment at work where more people were engaged, would that happiness graph change? And I think a lot of companies, you know, my experience is primarily in, you know, the greater kind of San Francisco Bay, Silicon Valley area. I think a lot of companies have focused on some cool things, you know, they give their employees free food and dry cleaning and you've ever been to the Facebook campus, by way of example, it's like fucking Disneyland, Epcot Center, you know, uh, and so it's a very, uh, uh, you know, it's a nice environment where like all this, they do all this stuff for you, and they make it easy for you to be at work forever and all that. But I think the, the sort of um, the coddling and the, the value added services, so to speak, are, are nice. But I think what most people want, is to be in a job where they feel valued, where they feel like they're contributing, where they feel like they can be creative, where they feel like they can be productive, whether they feel like they can be innovative and they could be making a difference. And I think the fact that the company offers free food and laundry is a nice thing, but I, I don't know, you know, let me say it this way. The engagement level at Cutco is very different than the engagement level at the average company. And, 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 and while Cutco might have some of the fringy things of a Facebook, they've focused on, and, and look, maybe Facebook's doing substantive things too, so I don't want to throw them under the bus necessarily, but, but clearly the things that, that speak to our heart, that speak to what we all want, particularly as younger people at work, which is to feel like we're being groomed and developed uh, for a successful career and that we have a path and that our work is valued and we're on a team that we respect and, 
and, and there's there's very little politics and bullshit and those sorts of things. I think those things matter more than the free laundry. Yeah, Chris, and you know, I, I, I'm not disputing Professor Galloway's data or conclusions, anything like that. It sounds like a really powerful set of ideas he's put together. But the one thing about that in there, like I, those 20 to 50, 25 to 50 years in there, the one part that you said, yeah, I agree. You got a lot going on. There's a lot of responsibility. But if the work stuff is put in the right context, it doesn't seem like such a heavy thing. It shouldn't rob you of your smile. But the other point about it, like having a family, having kids, I've been very, very lucky in a lot of different ways. There's never been anything that remotely approaches the joy and happiness of having children that I've experienced, you know, for all the other good stuff. So maybe that ties in a little bit with if you feel like you go to work and you come back, uh, it's not like one bit of drudgery to another. I'm not sure, but maybe that reflects uh, if the work side of that gets picked up, I think that other stuff will blossom as well. So you're, you're onto a lot of good things there, Chris. And, uh, it's a, it's a powerful range of ideas today, but it sounds like I have to say to tell us just for sure. So that everybody knows how can they find follow your different. And I want to say, I don't think I've ever seen you as happy and as gauged and uh, into what you're doing and just as cure. Well, your curiosity is going, I don't mean to say you're curious or weird, but your, your level of engagement and interest is soaring. It's, it's wonderful to see. You don't have to turn stuff off. Uh, you know, because you've completed one career. Well, you know, it's fascinating to, you know, at least in my case, in your late 40s to do a giant stop, change, start, right? And start over with this, in my case, this new world of authoring and podcasting. But the amazing thing about it for me is, uh, and of course, this is a, this is an old legendary uh, truth uh, for a reason. Um, If you want to learn, become a teacher. Um, and, 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 and there's no such thing as a legendary teacher who isn't a legendary student. And so the thing that's happened for me, uh, particularly since I started writing, because that required doing a bunch of research and engaging in content in a deep way, and then that got multiplied even further uh, in the two years that I've been podcasting. You know, like I said, in the last two years, we've had an unbelievable run of legendary authors uh, on our podcast, and I read the books. And so I've read 30 or 40 books in the last couple of years. And some of them are from pretty smart folks like, like Jim Harder, like Scott Galloway. You know, we had, we had, uh, we had Ken Blanchard on, you know, one of the 25 uh, best-selling authors of all time, One Minute Manager. And, you know, we recently had Safi Bacall on, who's written this amazing new book called Loon Shots. I think we might've touched on that uh, as well. But anyway, you know, so here's the thing. I, 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 I think thinking about thinking is the most powerful thinking you can do. And when you engage in other people's thinking and that sparks thinking for you, and then you start to connect dots that uh, maybe you hadn't connected. In some cases, maybe some others hadn't connected because you're engaging in ideas and thinking and research and, and perspectives of smart people. Um, I think that opens you up. And so look, I know it's a corny line, but, uh, re- uh, leaders are readers. I've always been that way. And the good news, you know, for me is, um, and I think it's contributed to my happiness is I now have the time to have these incredible conversations with these incredible thinkers and incredible authors and, and connect new dots. And uh, it's very, um, 
it's very stimulating. It's very vitalizing, if that's a word for your brain. Um, and uh, look, you know, and this is something I think we have to change about our education system. Learning's fun. And there's lots of ways to learn. I think the growth in podcasting shows there's a lot of people who are willing to engage in ideas and thinking and cool stories. And, you know, some of it's pure entertainment, which is fine. And some of it's very more, much more educational. And you look at all the awesome TED Talks and you look at what, you know, universities like Stanford have done with putting all this amazing content online and, you know, all of it, right? It's just um, now's the greatest time in history if you want to be smart. And if you're stupid today, you're really stupid because it's easy to get yourself smart or easier, I should say. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I know at one point in your career, you had a title of uh, chief um, exclamation point. So maybe now you're on your way to uh, give yourself the title of uh, chief dot connector. <laughs> I'll take it. Sounds great. Well, Chris, as always, a pleasure talking with you. You fire out lots of ideas and give the support behind it and the enthusiasm and a perspective. And where can people go to find Follow You're Different and hear some of these great conversations? The best place to find me is at lockhead.com, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com. Perfect, perfect. All right, brother. Thank you. It's a pleasure as always. And to all of you who've watched or listened, thanks so much. Chris will be back with us next month for more goodness, more mind-bending experiences, and more dot connecting. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Bob. <laughs>